a beautiful imagery that we've just had a prophetic word for, for the future in, from Isaiah chapter 2. We remind you, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And then the rest of the, the vision unfolds. Peace. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you offer us a vision of the future, a vision of, of hope and of peace. Lord, teach us your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today is Remembrance Sunday, and our call is to, to walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, last Saturday, which was the, the 2nd of November, in case you'd forgotten, 2019, I had the privilege, great privilege, of leading a wedding right here at, at All Souls. And an uh, afternoon wedding, and as I, I looked down as the, at the, the happy throng of, of those who'd come to support friends and family, I wondered what they would remember of that day. What they would remember of that day in maybe 10 years or 20 years or maybe even 30 years' time. Because the reason why I was pondering was that in the morning, of course, we had all borne witness to that famous victory of the Springboks in the Rugby World Cup. And what an impact that victory has already had on our country. Almost single-handedly, if you, if you like, the team has helped to restore a vision of our rainbow nation. Hope has been rekindled. Evidence of what we can achieve if we as South Africans put aside our differences and work together. <laughs> no wonder that the EFF are feeling a little bit miffed because their policies are centered on stirring up division and dissent. They depend for their existence, not on hope, but on despair and disunity. For those are the tools of radicalism. I wondered as I looked at that gathering last Saturday, how many of the guests would remember the 2nd of November 2019 because they had attended a wedding? Or would it be because of the rugby that had happened that day? Hopefully a turning point in the life of our nation. I hope maybe that those two events will become inextricably intertwined in their recollections of the day. Today is a day in which we consciously choose to remember. What we remember and the way that it shapes our actions is important. And so most importantly this day, we choose to remember those who have given their lives in times of conflict, to honor those who've been prepared to die in the cause of something greater than just themselves, in the cause of freedom or of peace or justice or indeed of love, a cause bigger than just one person. We must never cease to remember and to honor those people, for memory is powerful. As many of you have no doubt picked up by now, I've been here for more than three years, I, I love history, and I enjoy taking moments like, like this one to look back over history and to identify key events and to see the patterns that inevitably begin to emerge. I'm a firm believer in that old saying that if we forget the past, we're in grave danger of reliving it. And sadly, as I look around the world, 
I think that that saying is perhaps more relevant than it has been for quite some time. So as I looked through my history books and as I became aware of the, the news that we, that we uh, hear on television and newspapers and things, I became aware of a couple of very significant uh, events in this last year that we celebrated or that we should celebrate. You know, Remembrance Day is held on the anniversary of the armistice, the day that hostilities uh, in the First World War came to an end officially. The guns finally fell silent at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year 1918, 101 years ago tomorrow. And I'll be leading a service at Clifton School, as I usually do. It's, a, it's actually quite a recent tradition for them. It's only introduced about three years ago. Because they too have come to the conclusion that in this new generation, to remember is important. To remember is powerful. The actual peace treaty that brought the, concluded the war was actually signed at the Palace of Versailles uh, some months later, June 1919. In other words, 100 years this year. The Treaty of Versailles ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied powers. It, uh, there were many provisions in that treaty, but one of the most important, and I say controversial, required Germany to accept responsibility, complete moral and economic responsibility for the losses and the damage that was, that was uh, incurred during the First World War. This article, Article 231, later became known as the, as the War Guilt Clause. And the treaty required Germany to disarm, to make ample territorial concessions, and to pay reparations, to pay for those losses. Germany lost, in terms of that, of that uh, treaty, nearly 10% of its land area and around 10% of its population, as well as its possessions and assets around the world. In 1921, the total cost of the reparations was assessed at what would be the equivalent now of some $450 billion in today's terms. There were economists at the time who, who kind of waved the red flags. One of them, John Maynard Keynes, a well-known British uh, delegate to the peace conference, he predicted that the treaty was too harsh. He described it as a, a, Carthan, a Carthaginian peace. In other words, a peace, for those of you who know your history, that was designed to absolutely destroy the enemy, to leave nothing of them, to rule out any chance that they might again rise. And he said the reparations figure was excessive and that, in fact, it would prove counterproductive. Our own General Jan Smuts, who was a member of the South African delegation, wrote to the British Prime Minister at the time, Lloyd George, before the signing, and he described the treaty as unstable, and he declared, are we in our sober senses, or are we suffering from shell shock? He wanted the Germans not to be made to sign at the point of the bayonet. Smuts issued a statement condemning the treaty and regretting that the promises of a new international order and a fairer, better world are not written in this treaty. The Treaty of Versailles became a recurring and a popular theme of Adolf Hitler's propaganda. Scorned as a diktat, 
imposed by an international clique. Not giving Germany a seat at the Paris negotiations, fly, nor any real chance to participate in the process, other than, th other than sign uh, with a threat that if they didn't, there would be an immediate reinvasion of Germany. They had no choice, really. And the result was a lingering resentment, seen by many Germans as a deliberate attempt to humiliate them. And Hitler and his followers would not allow Germany to forget. And even though the terms of the treaty were revised several times in the years that followed, and eventually by the mid-1930s, the reparations had been done away with entirely, Several of the aspects of the treaty were never imposed at all, and breaches were simply ignored. But nevertheless, the memory of that humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles was powerful, and Hitler would not allow them to forget. And indeed, it became a pretext for a new conflict. Rearmament, reoccupation of lands taken away by Versailles, reunion with ethnic Germans, as happened in the annexation of Austria, all motivated and justified by Hitler through his powerful rhetoric and speech. And in which time he would, time and time again, he would evoke that collective memory of the German people. You have been humiliated. It is time to put things right. Memory is a powerful thing. And so another anniversary that we celebrate in 2019 2019 marks the 80th anniversary of the start of what we now know as the Second World War. Declaration of war by France in the, in the UK came on the 3rd of September 1939 in response to German invasion of Poland, a final step too far. And so began a six-year conflict that would reduce much of Europe to ruins and would draw much of the world into that conflict. I really believe that historians, and, and even we now perhaps, are beginning to see that rather than two separate world wars was one conflict with an almost inevitable second part. That conflict, both world wars if you like, have changed the world. And so much of the world that we know and that we take for granted now was shaped by the events of those years. Okay, so there's my first anniversary, 1919. 1919 leading directly to 1939. World War II then leads to Cold War. My second anniversary, I'll, I'll explain to you in a, in a moment. You're, I'm sure most of us, most of us looking around, it's within our, our memories, much closer in our memories. After World War II, Europe was split down the middle between what was then the Soviet Union and the Western Allies on the other side. Across Europe, as Winston Churchill described, descended an iron curtain, splitting east from west. Germany itself was divided, the eastern part occupied by the Soviets and the west controlled by the US, the UK and France. But there in the midst of East Germany was a little enclave, West Berlin, a conspicuously capitalist city, prosperous, free, democratic, within communist East Germany, 
The uh, Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, des- described West Berlin as stuck like a bone in the Soviet throat. It led to a blockade of, of uh, West Berlin at an attempt to, to drive the Western powers out. But they were not going. After about 10 years of ongoing kind of struggle but reasonable peace, conflict began to emerge again. And the result was a seemingly endless flow of refugees from east to west. Nearly three million, in fact, journeyed from East Berlin to West Berlin during the course of the blockade. Many of them were young, skilled workers, doctors, teachers, engineers. And then in uh, June 1961, a month in which some 19,000 people left the German Democratic Republic, the East Germany, through Berlin. The following month, 30,000 followed. In the first 11 days of August 1961, uh, a further 16,000 East Germans crossed the border into West Berlin. And on August the 12th, 1961, some 2,400 followed, the largest number of defectors ever to leave East Germany in a single day. That night, Nikita Khrushchev gave the East German government permission to stop the flow of migrants, of emigrants, by closing its borders for good. Overnight, more or less the space of days, barbed wire and concrete blocks began to emerge, and the Berlin Wall was built, dividing a city forever, one from the other, families, friends divided. For 28 years, the Berlin Wall stood as a stark sign, a stark reminder of the Cold War that was raging around the world, both in Europe but in proxy battles around the world. And so to the anniversary that we celebrated this very Saturday, yesterday, November the 9th, 1989, as the Cold War gradually began to thaw, so the wall came down. It's actually a, uh, an amazing, actually quite a funny story in, in many ways. I'm not going to tell it the whole thing. But the East German uh, authorities had never intended for the wall to fall. They had decided under great pressure to ease some of the passport restrictions. But unfortunately, the person that they chose to be the commentator that day, the spokesman, didn't have a chance to read his notes in advance And as he blustered through the news uh, uh, kind of session where he was being quizzed by journalists, he got the story entirely wrong. Gunter Shabowski is his name, and his name lives in history as the man who declared that from then onwards, from immediate effect, there would be no further border controls between East and West. The authorities, hoping that they could uh, remedy things quickly, were dismayed to find that two million East Germans descended on the wall and began to chip it away piece by piece. It's described as the greatest street party ever, ever. The wall came down the 9th of November, 1989. I remember it quite well. I was at university, and it came with a surge of optimism, A moment had been shown uh, so clearly that communism had failed, that there was a new hope. There was a new hope for a world which would be increasingly democratic with open markets. And indeed it did. In the years that followed 1989, 
massive optimism. The globalization that followed, we might argue with now, but in those 10 years, those first 10 years, the opportunities and the optimism were great. Flowing out of that, that optimism uh, emerged a large, the largest global middle class the world has ever seen. The enlargement of the European Union from 12 members to 28, from NATO moving from 16 to 29, deepening ties among the world's leading democracies. President Bush, senior, described Europe as being finally free, a moment that hadn't been achieved since the Second World War, finally had been achieved. And he went so far as to describe the emergence of a new world order, an era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. We recognize those dreams to be over-optimistic. We recognize that there were many challenges. And as we hear Angela Merkel as she spoke yesterday, she spoke, first of all, saying, no wall that keeps people out and restricts freedom is so high that it cannot be broken down. So for those who want to build walls as solutions in this day and age, let me tell you that walls do not work. No wall cannot be broken down. But she also argued that taking democracy for granted uh, uh, cannot, cannot be done either. The most significant hopes and gains unlocked by the Berlin Wall's fall are all at risk. Reflecting on those heavy, heady days, the Secretary of State, the US head, uh, Secretary of State at the time, speaking now, said that he'd worked, all that he had worked for in his life was now at risk. If US and European leaders don't recover common purpose, the common purpose that they shared at that moment, and that there is little sign that they will uh, find again, that this weekend's Berlin Wall anniversary is more a moment for concern than celebration. Memories are powerful. Memories can be used to stir up hatred and division and to take us back to, to places which we hoped that we had left behind. Or memories can take us forward, can take us to new places of hope. You see, remembrance is not passive. Remembrance is not just something that we do annually because there's a date in the diary or because we're just told that we must remember it's not an annual tradition. Memory is also not just simply a nostalgia. We must be on our guard against those kind of memories. Memories that hark back to something that never existed, that have a, a yearning for a past. Make America Great Again, again is an example of that. It's a nostalgia for a time and an event that never happened. And it is used, a false memory that is used to stir people, to divide people. We must warn and take heed against that. So what does remembrance mean? What really is at the heart of remembrance? I've said already today that we, we need to use our memories to honor those who have gone before us, those who have sacrificed their lives to give the potential that we have today. We remember individuals. We remember them with gratitude their honor, their sacrifice, their bravery, their heroism. 
especially those who pay the supreme price. In this world, which has become increasingly self-centered, some of the sacrifice that we see in those that we remember is almost unimaginable to us and to certainly maybe to my generation and generations to follow. But remembrance at its heart means drawing the past into the present so that we can shape the future for the better. I want to suggest to you that for us as Christians, our memories need to be shaped or need to be viewed primarily through Jesus Christ. Whatever memories we draw from the past and however we use them, we need to do it in a way in which it fulfills, it honors Jesus. Jesus frequently, often spoke about the power of memory. When we come to communion a little bit later on, it is because Jesus said more than once, do this, do this in memory of me. And as he did it, as he broke bread and as he shared wine, he drew from the past memories of a different time. He didn't mean them to get bogged down on memories of of exile or being in the midst of enemies. He didn't mean them to constantly remember that. What he wanted through the memories that he, was, that he was bringing to the surface was a reminder that in the midst of our dark places, God acts. God does the stuff. That he redeems his people. And supremely, as Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying to us, I have done it. On the cross, I have done it once and for all. If you have dark memories, if you are in the midst of of fear or anxiety or grief, know that I have done it. I have done what I did on the cross so that you can be forgiven and restored to God. I've done what I've done on the cross so that you might have a message of hope, a message of reconciliation, a message of forgiveness. View your history through those eyes, through those filters. If your history and your memories are opposed, are in conflict with the memories that Jesus gives us, can I suggest that your memories need to be transformed? If your memories bring you hatred, if your memories bring you a desire for revenge, we need to see our memories through the forgiving eyes of Jesus. Reconciliation, generosity, love for each other. See, remembrance, I hope and I pray, leads us to action. See, one more thing about the remembrance in the Bible, the word which is is there. It doesn't carry the English meaning. We so often think of remember as being something cerebral. It's something that we do with our minds. We remember with our minds. But in the Bible, memory and activity go hand in hand. When God remembers his people, it's always accompanied by action. He brings forgiveness. He delivers them. He visits them. He dies for them. That's how God remembers us. And so our call as we remember Christ, as we take bread and wine, we remember this. It is a call not just for cerebral activity, not just for tradition. It is a call for us to go out into the world filled with the power of memory and to do what Jesus does.
Remembrance is also personal. We do it together, but we do it on our own because primarily the power of, of memory transforms each and every one of us. It can be used to keep our hurts and our humiliations alive, like Hitler, like the EFF. Or it can be used to keep dreams alive, dreams of a better world, a transformed world. We need to hold on to the, the hopes and dreams of those migrants, of those emigrants who, who left behind East Germany for a, for a world that they dreamt of that was prosperous, that was free, that was democratic. In an imperfect world, now we need to hold on to those dreams. As I come back, as I close, to the words of our reading this morning from Isaiah. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The call to beat the swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks is not a call to other people. It's not a call to the army out there. It's a call to you, and it's a call to me. The question that we must ask ourselves are, what are my swords? What are my spears? What are the weapons I use to attack other people? Is it my temper? Is it my impatience, my intolerance, my prejudices? All of those things that we use to draw people down and to build up barriers. And then equally important, how can I transform my weapons into instruments of peace? A plowshare is the blade on a plow that cuts through the hard earth to prepare it for the sowing of seeds. The pruning hook allows us to trim away the dead branches and harvest the life-sustaining fruit from the trees and the crops. What are your pruning hooks? What needs to be cut away from your life? The dead wood that, that holds you back. What is the fruit that needs to be harvested, that needs to be celebrated? Where does the earth need to be plowed and new things sown through your life? New seeds of optimism and prosperity and of peace and of love. Remembrance is made complete in action. And so, dear friends, today we have a challenge on this Remembrance Sunday, not only to honor those who have gone before us, but for us to be the answer, for us to be the source of light, for us to be the source of hope transformed by our memories in the light of what Jesus has done for us, to bring hope for a future, to bring Jesus to the world. Amen. What we're going to do is, uh, our tradition for Remembrance Sunday is that we stand and we keep our minutes silence. And I want to invite us to do that. I'm going to ask uh, Julian to come forward. I'm going to read one little introduction, and then Julian is going to read the traditional words. And I'd like you to stand, if you don't mind, as we, as we do this. And so, dear friends, we meet in the presence of God. Let us pray. 
we commit ourselves to work in penitence and faith for reconciliation between the nations, that all people may, together, live in freedom, in justice and peace. We pray for all in bereavement, disability and pain, who continue to suffer the consequences of fighting and terror. We remember with thanksgiving and sorrow those whose lives in world wars and conflicts, past and present, have been given and have been taken away.